It's Friday, so thanks for heading into the weekend with us. And because it's Friday the 13th in October, congratulations to all the goth couples who are undoubtedly getting married in Las Vegas today. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, however, I am here with producer Layla Mohammed and contributor Andrew Crawley from TheList.Vegas, and we're going to talk about things in the news, a possible solution to that F1 traffic for strip employees, CCSD's version of school choice, and baby tortoises. Oh yeah, baby tortoises. It's Friday, October 13th. I'm David Figler, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Andrew, Layla, welcome to the Friday News Roundup. Hey, hey. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, All eyes are on this F1. I don't want to call it a fiasco because it's probably going to come off as a great race. But boy, the buildup has lasted forever and caused so much, I don't know, distress and turmoil amongst the populace. Mm -hmm. A little angst. Andrew Corrali. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, one of the big issues of many that was popping up was how do the people who work on the Strip get to their jobs? So apparently uh, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority finally came up with a workaround. What was that? Yeah, so this week they they put out a three hundred thousand dollar bid to uh, kind of uh, you know solve this uh, Gordian knot of how to get about ten thousand strip employees to work during the F one race, which uh, you know is happening November sixteenth uh, through the eighteenth. And so yeah, this is um, kind of a, a big puzzle to solve because you're going to need you know ten thousand workers to get to the strip during, you know, race week, which, you know, in that footprint of the actual race, there's about like 23,000 hotel rooms. Um, And Mm -hmm. so they uh, have, you know, a plan in place. um, And I'm no traffic engineer, but it sounds like uh, a a sort of, you know, Herculean uh, engineering uh, issue. Um, So what they're going to do is they're going to open up about uh, 4,300 parking spaces at the convention center and take the monorail as well. And so the idea is that these 10,000 employees are going to, you know, show up at the uh, Las Vegas convention center and, you know, use those parking spots, use the monorail to get to the east side of the strip. And they're also going to have uh, a shuttle bus system. They're going to have 10 satellite parking spots, uh, uh, parking areas kind of situated in the racetrack environs to, uh, to get these folks to work. And uh, I'm a, going to be watching uh, this this particular uh, sub-brace with, uh, with much interest to see if they could actually accommodate these workers this late in the game. I'm really surprised they're actually, you know, sort of cracking, trying to crack this nut right now. Well, I think that it just got to a fever pitch. And not to say that those workers aren't being inconvenienced by all the construction that's happening right now and the barriers to even get to work at this moment, let alone during mm-hmm. race times. So it's a glorified park and ride. I don't know. On a scale of one to 10, Layla, what does this plan look like to you if you had to rate it? I'd probably, because it's so late in the game, I'd probably give it no higher than a five because they couldn't have thought it out that well 
or it must have been like a last minute like well we need something for all of these workers so we'll just throw this together and it's hard for workers to get on the strip with the normal construction barriers so this is bound to be some sort of a fiasco What's funny to me, Andrew, is, you know, all of a sudden now the monorail, maybe for the first time in history, has become relevant as it as it relates to the local populace. I know. Right? You know, uh, I mean, I guess is this just the best of a bad situation? Yeah, if I had to give it a grade, I like to say I'd give it a PN for possible nightmare. Um, I'm no traffic engineer. Uh, I'm not even a regular engineer. But uh, I mean, if you do the math, you know, 10,000 strip workers, 4,300 parking spots at the uh, at the uh, convention center, um, you know, most people, you know, are very resistant to the idea. So, so if you say, oh, well, maybe some of them can carpool and things like that. But if you take in the the sort of the, the sort of resident reluctance to do things like car share and carpool, that itself is going to be a challenge. So I, I wonder about that. I think using the monorail is a is a you know pretty reasonable idea because that can distribute the people along the east side of this of the strip. I wonder how they're gonna get to, you know, the west side. I think there's just gonna be, you know. A lot of walking or maybe the shuttle system will come into play somehow where they can, you know, ferry them, you know, around somehow. But um, I find the whole thing kind of broadly, you know, emblematic of how we value our workers here in in Las Vegas and how we value labor. Right. Because Mm. the fact that we're talking about how are we going to actually take care of the workers who are supposed to be showcasing Las Vegas hospitality you know, the Las Vegas Strip, Las Vegas is a, is a tourist destination during this very high profile spectacle. Um, and we're talking about them at, you know, in the in the sort of, you know, the, the fourth quarter of the game. So I just find that kind of interesting, metaphorical, a little sad. Um, it also kind of resonates that the uh, culinary is going to start picketing or has started picketing on the strip to bring attention to their long lapsed contract with, uh, you know, MGM and Caesars. So I think there's this weird cosmic coincidence going on that um, says a lot about, you know, how we treat our hospitality workers. Yeah, both of you have called this an afterthought and the LVCVA only announced this solution on Tuesday after I I think it just became unavoidable that they had to come up with something is this really more of a sign of you know the powers of strip city lvcva and the Mm -hmm. stadium authority and the resort association versus citizens and workers i i I mean is this gonna be a never-ending battle is f1 just one flashpoint what do you think I think that's a great way of putting it and i think this sort of tension between you know essentially Labor and capital is another sort of chorus in the in the song, another refrain. And um, yeah, it's unfortunate that the workers are the last thing we think about. And, you know, and F1 is, um, you know, it's not just a race. I, I think, you know, if you sort of, you know, sort of zoom out, you know, this is owned by this gigantic media conglomerate, Liberty Media. So I think the the sort of powers at play here are, uh, you know, tr- you know, truly sort of Im- imbalanced. And I've been dipping into the socials and some of the conversations about F1 on, you know, on Reddit, on Facebook, um, on X. And there seems to be this feeling among uh, Las Vegas residents that we're sort of hostage <laughs> to these gigantic, you know, mega corporate spectacles. And that, you know, things like, you know, 
human accommodations in terms of, you know, transportation or livability um, are, you know, are an afterthought. I've heard some comments about the sphere, about actually getting in and out, you know, and how they do, um, you know, crowd ingress and egress is, again, you know, to, to restate the theme, kind of an afterthought. So I think it's uh, unfortunate that we're not, you know, accommodating the human element in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these projects. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, like you said, we're kind of being held hostage. F1 is not just this year. It's, they signed a contract for the next 10 years. Wow. So this is going to be an ongoing issue if they can't figure it out this year. The same question and the same issues are just going to come up next year of how do we navigate these road closures and constructions. And I think to your point, Andrew, Las Vegas has not been great at maybe crowd management or managing these huge events and spectacles that they're putting up. Yeah, I did hear that the Sphere's parking lots are not great, similarly to the Allegiance parking structure and lack thereof. So I think it'll be interesting to see what the Super Bowl looks like come February and if we're going to have the same issues there with whatever road closures we'll see and just the management of these huge events. Yeah, I mean, Las yeah, Vegas yeah. elevates cluster effery to an art form. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, on the other... It's all part of the meta spectacle, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I just want to end on this point, is that, you know, the head of the Las Vegas Convention Visitors Authority, Steve Hill, is like, okay, okay, but it's going to bring $15 billion, with the capital B, into our economy over wow. the next five months. And I, I just don't buy it, man. I think that's just m- a marketer doing marketing. I don't think any one of us is going to see a damn nickel of that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. was it worth it? Yeah, that's was it worth question. it? Well, I mean, you know, Zoom Zoom and Super Bowl and everything else. Oh, Vegas! No one does it like we do it. Hey, it's David Figler, and one of my favorite food festivals is coming back to town. It's Vegas Unstripped over at the Palms Hotel on Saturday, May 18th. Over two dozen chefs from some of Las Vegas's most talked about restaurants creating original, unique menu items they've never made before. Chef creativity at its best. We're talking chefs from Partage, Esther's Kitchen, Milpa, EDO, and more, including this year's James Beard Award finalist Steve Kessler from Aroma. Tickets are $150 and are all-inclusive of food and drink, so you don't have to pay for anything once you're inside. No hidden up charges. I went last year, and it was so crowded in the best possible way. We got one remarkable dish after another, and while it was a little indulgent, here's the best part. The net proceeds go to local charities. So head on over to VegasUnstripped.com to get your tickets now. We'll see you there. All right, topic two. Magnet school applications are open for next year, 24-25. The Clark County School District is hosting what they're calling a school choice fair. Layla, that language intrigues me. Tell me what the Clark County School District's school choice fair is all about. Yes, so the Clark County School District School Choice Fair is this Saturday from 9 to noon at one of their magnet schools, LVA, um, Las Vegas Academy of the Arts. 
and they are doing that to let parents and students know all of their options for schools within the Clark County School District, um, including magnet schools, which are a part of the public school system, um, and all of their options and all of the kind of specializations that they offer and can get through magnet schools. Well, what kind of specializations or magnets uh, are we talking about that are inside the Clark County School District? I mean, I know there's a lot of them, but what are some of the the bigger ones or the Mm -hmm. more well-known ones? So the biggest ones are the technical academies, for example, Northwest Career and Technical Academies, Southwest, Southeast. Those are the biggest magnet schools in Vegas right now. But there's also some smaller ones and all of them specialize in something, whether it's performing arts or STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, um, leadership, uh, international baccalaureate programs. So those are the array of specializations your children can utilize or get access to within the Clark County School District. Now, what I found really super duper interesting is the Clark County School District is calling this a school choice fair. Of course, those words are somewhat a loaded term that has become like a banner for conservative Mm -hmm. and religious parent groups uh, who want to get some state funding, some taxpayer money to help them pay for private schooling, which is overwhelmingly like over 90 something percent religious schools. Mm -hmm. So how do you think school choice in this context is different? Yeah, I think it's different because they're emphasizing magnet schools, which are part of the public school system. They are free to attend. They do have enrollment criteria. So your student might need to meet GPA requirements and they have a limited amount of seats. So if they have more applications than they do seats, then they go through a lottery system um, to kind of keep it fair. Magno schools came to Clark County School District um, in the 90s to help diversify um, the Clark County School District and desegregate it. And so this is a public school system option for school choice. And I think that gets away from what Lombardo was most commonly talking about during his campaign with the opportunity scholarships, which mainly were to send students to private schools. And that number is 95% of kids who received opportunity scholarships used those for religious private schools. Um, So I think this is, that's where this is different. This is going into the public school system side of things. Andrew, what's your takeaway from them using those words, school choice and their fair? Yeah, I really found that kind of funny. And I did a double take. Um, And like you said, yeah, it's definitely a loaded term. And it's pretty much become a byword for, you know, uh, publicly funded religious education at the behest of uh, angry conservative parents. So I kind of wondered whether the school district called this uh, a school choice fair to maybe placate those parents or to placate the governor and maybe say, yeah, we're, you know, we're addressing this policy agenda of yours, because I think it would have been more technically correct if they just called it a magnet school, you know, educational fair kind of thing. So I thought that was an interesting choice of words. And I wonder if there are some sort of micro politics uh, at work, uh, uh, you know, on the on the DL. I think the their choice of language, it maybe is to like, 
reclaim that term or something. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. Because it's not just for magnet schools. The um, change of school assignment applications are also open. And that's for um, parents and families wanting to send their student to schools outside of their zoning um, area. So say I wanted to go to Green Valley High School when I lived in North Las Vegas, I can submit a change of school assignment, not necessarily for a magnet school or a magnet program, but just wanting to go to a school outside of my zone. So very technically, you are making a choice, a school choice. Yes, I, I, exactly. I hear you. And I would imagine on those applications, there have to be some, some sort of compelling reasons based on their standards. I, you know, guys, I just looked at it as a straight on clapback. Um, mm. Because part of the the school choice lobby here is a straight up attack on the quality of education at the Clark County School District. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you listen to any of the testimony during that opportunity scholarship funding hearings, it was all like, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing, Clark County School District sucks big time. Why shouldn't I as a parent have the freedom to choose my student getting a better education. They never mentioned the religious part of it, even though like we were talking about, it's mm-hmm. it's really just about religious education. But it is a it's definitely a direct attack on the quality of education. They talk about the safety at the schools, et cetera. And and I think that Clark County School District is firing back like, hey, you want to talk about choice? There are lots of choices that absolutely exist within the public funding realm of public schools. I do wonder what questions uh, any family should bring to the Clark County School District administrators who are present at this school fair choice. I mean, what do you think they should be asking or or, or talking about with the, the folks that are at the fair? I think a great question would be how the teacher shortage affects these magnet mm. programs and these magnet mm-hmm. schools mm-hmm. because they are still within the Clark County School District system. Is that teacher shortage affecting class size? Is it affecting the amount of resources that are going to these magnet schools that get mm-hmm. higher funding to make sure that students have more resources. Um, and an, a big draw for magnet programs and magnet schools and charter schools, but we're not really talking about that in this conversation, is class size and smaller class sizes and more resources going to your student. So I think that would be a great question to ask since these magnet schools still operate within the Clark County School District system. Mm. Yeah, great questions. I, I would also imagine, you know, the whatever the measure of success is, like what is the measure of success for my student here? Uh, how how do other students who have graduated from these magnet programs, uh, how, how are they faring in the world? What is their, you know, uh, economic opportunity uh, mm-hmm. spectrum? Uh, are they going to colleges? Are they doing yeah. well? Are they going to good colleges? I think these are all really good questions asked for uh, of CCSD. And I think that CCSD being so under fire from so many different fronts doesn't get to brag about the successes. We just seem to linger, don't we, Andrew, in some of the bad stats? Yeah, they should have called it the school clapback fair. I'm really liking this <laughs> uh, this thread that we're on for sure. And yeah, another thing I'd be curious about too, as a, as a, as a parent, if I had a kid in the school system would be, you know, what are the sort of credentials of the of the teachers who are actually teaching these, you know, focused magnet programs? I often wonder, oh, yeah. like, do they just do some sort of like light supplemental, you know, training to, um, you know, to credential somebody in a, an area of, uh, of specialty? Or um, do these teachers actually go through like, you know, 
a serious, meaningful, rigorous uh, program to, uh, you know, to really bring um, some expertise to these magnet experiences. And I just love the idea of magnet schools because it fundamentally recognizes that, you know, the traditional school system, you know, doesn't fit every learning style. And, exactly. you know, some students are, are suited for um, you know, something more, you know, specialized, something maybe more vocationally oriented, um, something yeah. more artistic. So, uh, I, yeah, I think it's a great development in terms of public education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't really think it was ever fair to consider Clark County School District as a one-size-fits-all, take-it-or-leave-it sort of environment. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, having a fair like this definitely highlights, you know, a, a lot of that kind of diversity. Look, all three of us were educated in the Clark County School District, as it turns out. Were any of you in magnet schools, or if you weren't, what would you have wanted to do as a student? I didn't go to a magnet school. I did go to a charter school, and I had a lot of friends who went to magnet schools because our parents didn't want to keep us in the public school system. And I think something that parents need to be mindful of is that if students want to be involved in any extracurricular activities, then there's a little bit of a dance around that where you have to go to your zone school Mm. and you have to work that out and you have to work out extra just like transportation and making sure your kid can get to their new magnet program or charter or whatever school and then also attend clubs or sports at their zone school. So I think that was kind of a surprise when my parents were putting me through the charter system and that dance was a little bit of a headache, but it is an option and it can work out if you have the resources, but also there are requirements to that. Um, And if you change schools, you're put on a hold. So just really make sure that you look into all of that because with school choice also comes a lot of other requirements and things that you have to follow for your students. Yeah, not uncomplicated. Andrew, are you too old to have been in a magnet school? But if you had a choice, what would you have done? Yes, I am <laughs> of the, the the BC era or the PM era, pre-magnet school. I went to mm-hmm. uh, Las Vegas High School um, before it became the Las Vegas Academy. But um, it's funny you ask that because it was late in my high school career that I took a couple semesters of a journalism class that was taught by, you know, one of those Swiss army knife teachers who does like some PE. He does some like, yeah. you know, arts, arts classes. And then he subbed in for journalism. But I took a really rabid interest in journalism. And I remember wishing that there were more classes and we went more in depth and it was, you know, just a lot more to it. So I really feel, you know, if I could hop into a time machine, that would be awesome to, you know, to go to a, uh, you know, maybe a journalism or writing focused uh, a magnet program. So uh, I, I sort of see their value in uh, in retrospect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was in the beta magnet program over at Valley High School, which was the International Baccalaureate, which I'm very happy to see is still thriving wow. over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was definitely an interesting experience and one which was purely a choice that I made with my parents. And uh, I think it absolutely paid off. It was it was a great education with some some fantastic teachers. So uh, look at you now. Parents, look okay. at me now. I'm podcasting. Um, (laughs) Well, good luck to all the parents and students for 2425. May you find the right path. Yes. Good luck. Okay. Topic three, and let's just go through this one quickly. I read a story in the Nevada Current by Jennifer Solis 
Uh, it was riveting. I recommend everyone take a look. It's about these little baby tortoises, these juvenile tortoises, 51 of them, in fact, that are being released into a habitat in Southern Nevada that they might not get killed in and that they might possibly thrive. The desert tortoise, which, you know, is really our mascot of all life in in the valley, is in trouble in a lot of ways because the drought has not only impacted their habitat, but it has really kind of perked up the predators who wouldn't otherwise be feasting on them. So, you know, uh, and I didn't even know this. I, I knew about um, ravens and I knew about coyotes. And it's never their first choice to go try to eat a tortoise. But when other food sources are drying up, they'll go there. But also badgers. I didn't even know we had stinking badgers down what? here. But yeah. badgers are eating the tortoises too. But of course, worse than any of the predators are us humans who keep building and building and expanding and driving these tortoises closer and closer to their predators. So the story is really just about this Herculean effort. These tortoises are in between. They're, they're, they're not babies anymore, per se, because they've, their shells are a little harder, so they're a little safer, but they're mm-hmm. not sexually active yet. So they're basically tweens. They're tween tortoises. Tween tortoises. And they're, they're putting them in a place. I don't know. Do, do we need to be working more on those upstream issues than trying to just simply repopulate tortoises 51 at a time? Aren't these same problems just going to keep doing this kind of damage to our natural habitat? Yeah, I think the theme of today's talk is afterthought. And, you know, the tortoises have been historically an afterthought in terms of development in Nevada, conservation in Nevada, and, you know, big scale industrial solar development is unstoppable. And and the fact that it's relatively easy to get big projects sited on public land in Nevada. And I think that's the the picture that I see here. The BLM is, is, you know, they, their job is to kind of accommodate everybody. And I think we see the legacy of that when you see these battles between conservation and renewable energies, um, opponents that you would really hope not to see clashing, but that's kind of a recurring theme in contemporary times. Definitely. I mean, we need to think about how we're affecting it on the front end so we don't have to try to make up for it years later in an effort that we don't know if it's going to work in the long run. We don't know we don't know if it's going to significantly increase the population that we've already decreased. Yeah. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. and as cute as they are, they're also pretty resilient. And while they typically survive, and we haven't even mentioned climate change, I'm not going to go down that pathway, but it, it, it merits a mention, their mortality rates recently because of all this kind of factors happening it, it, in one study is like up to 50 percent. It's just like yeah. not tenable. So, I mean, good luck to all you tween tortoises that have just been released <laughs> into a new habitat relocated. Yeah, burrow, burrow. Yeah, they're getting kicked out yeah. of these, you know, the uh, of the house. And if I was one of these like tween tortoises, I'd be like, no, I don't want to be. I don't. I'm not ready to go see the real world. Let me you know, stay in this uh, posh, uh, quasi artificial habitat you got me in. So it's, exactly, uh, I'm kind of well, terrified on their behalf. They're out there and they're being tracked. And I'm imagining that probably the researchers give them fun names. But why don't we do that game really quick um, for these 51 tween tortoises for funsies? What names do you want to give one of them? My most vaguesty one I could come up with was Turt Kerkorian. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a good yeah. one. 
I was trying to go quintessentially Vegas. Okay, well, you said, you know, putting them out in the real world, and that made me think, okay, they're a tween, they're about to become sexually active, they're going to be mingling with 50 other tortoises. Uh, I'm going to name it after Bryn, who was my favorite of the original real-world Las Vegas cast. Uh, (laughs) She was single and ready to mingle. She became a go-go dancer for a minute. Um, knows how to party. I, I want my tween tortoise to be named Bryn. Bryn. Okay. Bryn. Wow, you really, really thought that out. That was quite an elaborate Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Real world. Real world. That's a good one. Tortoise style. I have one that mine is like kind of an association game. So when I think of tortoises, I think of Springs Preserve because we went there so freaking much in elementary yeah. school for field trips and that's where we saw the most desert animals and across the street from springs preserve is meadows mall so i'm gonna name mine meadow um, for meadows mall yes and also after tony soprano's daughter because that tortoise is going to be a badass exactly yes i love that well layla andrew uh, another great friday news roundup thanks so much for joining me thanks david thank you great being here And that's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson. Our producer is Layla Muhammad. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets. And our host is David Figler. That's me. Music is by OG Moose, Epidemic Sound, and All the Kimonos. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the new movie, The Southern Paiute People. If you enjoyed the show, eh, go tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Till then, stay lucky. How about Shell Dunn Adelson? No. Oh, that's a good one. I'll you keep that, Andrew.